If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 37 to 42 is what we're reading today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback Bible in front of you. It's found on page 910. Um, here at Cornerstone, what we do is even the reading of God's Word is part of our, our worship. And so would you stand as we read and receive God's Word this morning from Acts chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 37 to 42. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Friends, would you join me in prayer once more as we ask God's blessing now in his word. Uh, Father, now we turn our attention to receiving your word. And as we have just sung these songs and prayed our confessions, as we have uh, lifted our petitions to you, uh, we ask God for one more blessing, and that's that you would speak to us clearly and powerfully, and that by your Holy Spirit's presence in our hearts, taking the word and allowing it to be planted into a soft heart, so that it would bear fruit and we would grow and be edified. For we know, Lord, that your word gives to us much life. And I bless us, Lord, this day that even the sermon and the listening and the attention and the convictions and all of the affections would be to your highest glory. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're beginning a new series today, uh, just a four-week series on community. And of course, community fostering here at Cornerstone is one of our core values. We have five of them. And the core values which we talk about so often are important because these core values help us evaluate and decide uh, what it is we're focusing on as a ministry. You know, as a church, there are, there are a lot of ideas we could try, and there's a lot of different things we can implement. Uh, but how do we know what's worth our time and what's worth our energy and what's worth our resources uh, when those things are so limited. And the main way we evaluate is to ask ourselves, will this help us achieve either our vision as a church or will it help put into practice one of our core values? And the centrality of community fostering is one of these core values. It's, in fact, why we call our uh, meeting times community groups. It's why we've, over the past few years, moved away from monthly large group meetings to more regular, uh, either uh, twice a month or weekly community group meetings. It's why we're trying to do these joint CGs between the different groups. We want us to uh, better understand and implement and strengthen this value of community fostering in our church. And the whole purpose of this series is to help you understand uh, both have a greater sense of your need for community, but also have a greater conviction to build toward a better community. Now, for many years, and, I, and I'm speaking to those who have been at Cornerstone for a while, but, but I believe Cornerstone was, it was able to operate for a while without intentionally pursuing community. Intentionally pursuing. What I mean by that is uh, both because of the size of the church and the fact that uh, members have known each other for so long, it was uh, pretty 
easy to get to know people without making the effort to do it. Uh, that even if you didn't ask what was going on in somebody's life, you could easily just overhear it in a conversation or you could hear it from another person. Uh, that is a big news can happen and you just give it enough days and it'll trickle throughout the church and somebody will hear and eventually everyone will hear. But here's the thing. As the Lord continues to grow our church, we can no longer assume that community will just take care of itself. Especially uh, those who, who've been here a while, um, because as I look out at this congregation, uh, it's very different than what we were a year ago and much different than it was two years ago. We can't assume the old ways of thinking of, oh, community just takes care of itself. There are people who have come in the last year. There are people who have come just in the last few months since we've moved into this building. And this is why for all of us, whether or not you've been a longtime Cornerstone member or you are a new attendee, every one of us needs to be intentional about pursuing and fostering community. Community must be created, it must be curated. And our attention needs to be given to it. It's like, you know, I would love apple trees uh, to grow in my backyard. And God can provide all of the, uh, the perfect weather conditions and, and rain and plenty of, of sunshine and keep all the insects away. But the truth of the matter is, unless I plant an apple tree in my backyard, no matter what conditions God sends our ways, I'm not going to be able to enjoy the fruit of apples. In the same way, God can send the perfect conditions for this church, for great community. But if none of us are intentionally pursuing planting seeds of community, community, then none of us are going to be able to enjoy that fruit. We can't just expect Christians to come together and great community will come out of that. Now, of course, uh, on this topic, there are people who have different views on this. Uh, some of you uh, need to be challenged because you're committed to this church. You're committed to this body. And so you need to be challenged to think, how can I begin now to intentionally foster better community? I'm committed here. So how can I pursue that kind of community? How can I help create that environment where these relationships can begin to take place? And then others of you need to ask, well, what am I looking for in a spiritual community? Why am I having such a hard time committing to a church? Am I, am I waiting for Apple to come up with a new, you know, iCommunity to make it convenient for me? Because that's not going to happen. You know, what am I looking for? Some of you need to begin to ask that question. What am I looking for? Why is it so hard for me to commit myself to a community? And still a third of you uh, may need to ask, do I really believe Christian community is that important? Do I really sense the need for it in my life? Do I, am I convicted that this is the way the Christian life uh, should go? That, that, that I sense my soul's emptiness and, and, and need for community? Well, uh, as you see here, we have a, a wonderful graphic um, that uh, illustrates the title of our series, which is Committed Unity. And it's called Committed Unity because at the end of the day, community is simply committed unity. You know, community doesn't just happen on its own. And as I was thinking about the title for this series, you know, over the years, going to different retreats and hearing different churches, uh, themes for the year, uh, I once heard this one that, that I really loved. It's a very popular slogan, a very popular way of putting it. It's uh, community, and, and the theme would be something like, come unity. Right? And, and I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, ooh, I'm stealing that. I'm taking this. I wrote it down on my computer. So thinking about community, I said, community of the perfect title. But as I reflected more and more, I was preparing for the series, I realized that we can't just say community. 
that unity in a group just never comes about on its own. That if we sit here waiting for unity and community to miraculously happen, we'll be waiting a very long time. Community is something that needs to be worked toward. We need to strive after it. So community needs to be formed, it needs to be fashioned, and it needs to be shaped, and it needs to be strengthened as people commit themselves to the work of unity. Committing themselves to being one, committing themselves to one anothering. And this realization came to me as I was reflecting, particularly in verse 42, where Luke writes, and they devoted themselves to, and he lists four things. But that word, and they devoted themselves, in the Greek, uh, it can be translated something like they persisted in, or they persevered in these things. And that word appears 10 times in the New Testament, six times in the book of Acts. And whenever Luke uses that word, he's talking about uh, the unity that Christians were committed to. That devotion is a unity Christians commit themselves to. You know, what allowed the community of Christ to persevere for 2,000 years? It was the commitment of believers to one another. And we've really lost this, especially in the 21st century in our church today. We're very different from the book of Acts because when we look at community, uh, we tend to view it more consumeristically than we do in a committed view. Right? Because listen, and, and this may be you, a consumeristic view of community asks, what can I get from this group? How can this group benefit me? How will this help me flourish in my own life? What contributions can this make to my life? That's a consumeristic view of community, but a committed view of community asks, what can I give to this a group of people? How can I benefit others through my presence of being here? How can I help create a flourishing community? How can I contribute? You know, when all of us begin thinking that way, then community begins to flourish. But if all of us get together and we think, what can I get from this group? And everyone is waiting for somebody else to pass them a little bit of community, then we're all left starving. And when we live with a consumeristic attitude toward community, we, we often just, we expect it to be convenient and comfortable. Convenient and comfortable, isn't that what we want in community? That's why some of us have great community and we don't want to continue to grow in community because we don't want to disturb what's convenient and comfortable. That's why some of us are having difficult times committing to a church because we're looking for what is convenient and comfortable. We're looking to see, you know, who are the people who are like me? Who are the people who like me? And who are the people who like the same things as me? And when those things match, then we think, oh, now I found good community. And the problem is that in all of this thinking, you are thinking way too much about me and not you. It's not called community. It's called community. I worked hard on that. Give me a little more on that. You know, but, but, but the early church, they, they were nothing like the way we tend to think about it. You know, we understand, um, we, we, we put the me at the center of community, but the early church properly understand what stands at the middle of community. You and I. I also worked hard on that one. <laughs> you and I, the letters you and I, but also you and I. <laughs> Committing ourselves, devoting ourselves uh, to one another. Now, when we read this passage, we need to understand a little bit about the context and what's going on. 
Uh, earlier in chapter 2, Peter, the Apostle Peter, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he stands up before a crowd. He begins preaching the gospel with boldness and clarity. And he preaches in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's all he preaches, and the result is remarkable. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. You will receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive forgiveness. And verse 41 then says, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. In one day, in one sermon, 3,000 souls. Now what happens, because at, at this point, the church is about 120 people, and 3,000 souls are saved, about 3,000 souls in one day. So in one night, the church expands from 120 people to 3,120 people. And you can imagine this is an organizational and logistical nightmare. You know, even within our own churches, we're getting for a retreat. This is a, uh, the numbers are coming in, and, and Kelly, who's uh, doing a great job serving and doing the uh, administrating for this, is... Is, it's, it's getting a little overwhelming just because there's so many people to keep track of. So imagine your church grew 26 times uh, its size in just one sermon. I mean, you, you would want to just, you know, if I was an apostle, I'd say to Peter, man, like, you got to stop killing it with the sermons. Like, you got you to gotta just, you know, can you preach a dud? You know, preach from Romans. And then Peter would say, what's Romans? And you're like, yeah, that's exactly right. Romans hadn't been written, you know. <laughs> What do you do? Now, because, because any organization that experiences rapid growth like this, you know, is, is at risk from falling apart. And so how does the church not fall apart a week later? How does the momentum of the church continue in a sustainable and continually expanding way? And the answer, of course, is when we read in verse 2 that these believers, when they came to faith, they were devoting themselves. They were committing themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. As these believers came to Christ, they were committing themselves to one another. Because what they had in common was not the community. The community hadn't been built yet. What they had in common was Christ. They were united to Jesus. And as they're committed to Christ, then they committed themselves to community. They weren't just simply looking for a passing fad or a new trendy thing. Like They experienced a renewal in their lives. They were once dead and now they were alive. They were once blind and now they could see. And it's this spiritual reality of coming to Christ that they were brought together. Now, we have a naive, romantic view of the Bible sometimes where we just think, you know, that sin wasn't there. But, but you know, in Acts 2, these people were complete strangers. Community wasn't easier for them than it was or is for us. You know, these 3,000 people, they didn't go to this, you know, grow up in the same neighborhood or go to the same school, and, and they didn't necessarily have all of the same interests and personalities. They weren't all in the same age group or stage of life. Those are all things that we like. Those are all things that we think we can commit to and then have community in, but, but none of these things were true. You know, I'm sure if you look at the book of Acts and you see all the different personalities, I'm sure some of these people were introverts and some were extroverts and some loved big crowds and some loved small crowds and, and some people loved being out and about and others just preferred, you know, being home. But you step into the, to, to the world of Acts 2 and you see this diversity of people coming to faith and committing themselves to one another and you realize, man, community wasn't easier for them than it is for us. But no matter who it was that came to Christ, they were committed to one another. Which kind of rebukes us a bit, too, because when we look for community 
and we look for where we want to invest in. And we often go and we say, you know, how are the people? Are they like me? Do they like me? And do they like the same things as me? Are, and when we judge according to those ways, then we create reasons to not commit to a body. But the most important unifying thread that we have together, of course, is Jesus Christ. Jesus, in calling us to himself, inevitably then calls us to one another. You know, I love uh, the ESV translation, but there is something about it uh, that I do think is a little unfortunate. And it's not really a translation problem, it's an editing problem, which is if you look between verses 41 and 42 of your Bible, and I believe most of you are using ESVs, uh, there is a heading here, uh, the fellowship of the believers. Now, just to let you know, if, if you weren't aware of this before, when the Bible translators were putting this together, these headings, those aren't part of the original Bible. Those are headings that people, that the uh, editors put in there to help you kind of understand what each section is about. And it can be helpful. It's often really helpful, especially when you don't know what a passage is about. You read the heading, you go, oh, that's what it's about. But this heading, I think, is ultimately unhelpful because it makes you take a break between verse 41 and verse 42, when I don't think there should be a break there. There shouldn't be a pause. Because verses uh, 37 continuing on to verse 47, it's just one story. It should be read back to back. And so I wish that they would take that heading out. Why? Because then you would read it this way. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That what's happening as you don't pause between, you're reading that 3,000 people heard the gospel message that they came to faith in this saving Christ. They repented, they were baptized, and then they were redeemed and brought into a community of believers. It's all just one motion. It's one saving, redemptive act. That as they came to Christ, they came to one another. And it's the same thing that happens today. When you come to faith in Jesus, you're not just being brought out of darkness into light and from death into life, but you're being brought out of alienation into a new community. You're being brought out of an orphanage into a new family. That's what happens when you come to faith. You're not saved and then you go, hmm, now let me join a community. When you're saved, you are joined into a community. So whether or not you enjoy the benefits of community or not, whether you are committed to unity or not, by becoming a Christian, you are part of a community. Amen. And John Stotts writes that the purpose of the cross was not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate their loneliness, but to create a new community whose members would belong to Jesus Christ. God saves us as individuals, but he saves us into a community. Now, if you look at verse 38, what was Peter's message? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is a symbol that you are united to Christ, and in being united to Christ under his name, you are united to everyone in his body. That when I'm united to the head, Jesus Christ, I'm united to one another. And so community doesn't happen when we link arms to one another. That's how community in secular organizations happen. That's how community amongst uh, unbelieving friends happens when we link arms to one another and the strength and the power of our communities are resolved together. But Christian community works differently. Christian community happens when we are linked first and foremost to Jesus Christ. And in being linked to Christ, therefore we are linked to one another. You know, imagine we are, Christians are a bunch of paper clips spread across a table. You're left and, and you're out there and you're scattered. 
how do you end up coming together? Well, imagine a, I lowered a powerful magnet over the table, then all of the paper clips would be drawn to that magnet. The paper clips would come to the magnet, but as they come through the magnet, they would be coming to one another. So apart from that magnet, there's no power, there's no influence, there's nothing moving to make the paper clips come together. In the same way, when we're united to Christ and we're united to Him, we come to Him, that inevitably brings us together. So when Jesus calls you to Himself, He calls you also to one another. So the question is whether or not you are pursuing that community. You are in that community. The question is, are you pursuing that community? Are you enjoying the benefits of that community? Do you understand how important that community is for you? This is the pattern of our redemption. Redeemed by Christ, redeemed into community. It's, it's one pattern of redemption. Redeemed by Christ, redeemed into community. If you break that, you're missing a little bit of your redemption. Redeemed by Christ into community. Okay. So if this, is, if this is the case, then when you look for community, what do you look for? What should you be pursuing after? And that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time, camped out in verse 42. Because here we see these believers, they've committed themselves to four things that Luke highlights. He calls them the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So there are many things, many ingredients necessary in community, but there are at least four things that Luke highlights for us, and I just want to spend time uh, considering ourselves. So the first is this. Community is centered on the truth and application of God's word. At the time that the church was birthed, when the church first started, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So there were apostles and they were going around teaching. That's what they were devoting themselves to. Now, in our case, 2,000 years later, the office of the apostles have ceased, but the apostles' teachings are recorded for us in the Bible. So true spiritual community requires a devotion, a commitment to God's word. All of us committed to that. That God's word needs to be the bread that we eat and it needs to be the light that leads the way. God's word needs to be the compass that points us north. It needs to be the mirror that we look into. God's word needs to be the truth that is sought after. It needs to be the voice that's heard and obeyed. And this true community must keep both, listen, the truth and the application of the Bible so central to its life that people are sharpened and edified by it continuously. Now, when you hear that and you think, well, does that mean Bible study all the time? Yes. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't mean Bible study all the time. But what it means is a constant encouragement, edification, and exhortation from the Word of God. It requires when you come together, sharing the things that you've learned and the, the lessons that the Spirit is convicting you of. It requires the Word of God dwelling in us richly, so we're teaching and admonishing one another, and we're encouraging one another. You know, in community, it's fine to talk about other things. It's totally fine to talk about other things. It, it, you know, but there's a problem. There's a problem when, when the community gets together and, and they can talk for hours about the, the most recent you know, drama that's out. Or you can come together and for hours you can talk about how you know, Avengers Endgame ended. Um, and I'll talk to you about that if you are willing after service. You could come together and you could talk for hours about you know, the results of the NFL draft. You come together and talk about what you saw, you know, the, the cute thing you saw on, on Pinterest or, or, or whatever you know, recipe you have for this, for, this, for this new dish. The problem is not talking about those things. The problem is when you can talk about those things uh, for such a long time and yet you cannot sustain a conversation, uh, 
talking about the word of God for more than a few minutes before your eyes glaze over and you check out and you are bored out of your mind. That's the problem. It's, there's nothing wrong with talking about life and talking about the things you enjoy and talking about these good things. The problem is when you can, simply cannot talk about God's word in any significant way before you are completely uninterested in the conversation. Rather, what will happen is, community doesn't happen as, as you go around and you say, you know, today I, I'm going to talk about these five Bible verses, and you just go to every conversation and you repeat the same thing. No, what happens is as each believer has the word of God dwelling in them richly, when you talk with somebody, those things just naturally come out. Blessings and encouragement and reminders of promise and uh, reminders of gospel truth to one another. You know, my question for, for community is, is you know, are, are you part of a community or are you sowing into a community or are you helping uh, foster a community where the word of God is being shared and encouraged and you are uh, edifying people and sharpening people with it? Is there a place um, where and, 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 and when uh, these truths can be spoken into your life? Because if you're, if you're missing out on this, uh, then you're missing out on a large part of the Christian life. Because Sunday service is great, and, and the word preached and the word read in the various moments are great, but we need more than that. I mean, it's the daily bread we eat, not the weekly bread we eat. And sure, we eat it ourselves, but not only do we eat it ourselves, but we share it with others. That's what community does, centers on the truth and application of God's word. Here's the second thing. Community spurs intimate fellowship and true participation in each other's lives. You know, the Greek word for fellowship is translated in other places, um, sometimes as participation, uh, sometimes as partnership. So when we think fellowship, we hear code for donuts and coffee. <laughs> but when Paul says fellowship, when Luke says fellowship, they mean so much more than that. You know, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, I don't have it here, but in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, when Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper, this is what he says. The cup of blessing that we bless isn't not a participation in the blood of Christ. Isn't not a fellowship in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break isn't not a participation in the body of Christ. So as we eat the Lord's Supper, that we are participating, we are fellowshipping with Christ. That's not donut and coffee language. Philippians 1.5, Paul writes, because of, your, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until the last. This partnership in the gospel, that is not donuts and coffee. The way that fellowship is used here means that it, it means so much more than chatter and, and crackers and cookies. It's referring to a sharing of life together, a sharing of life, a participation in life together, a partnering together in life to experience the highs of life together, to experience the lows of life together. The fellowship among the Christian saints means being so connected intimately with other people that, that you cry together with them when somebody's in the valleys and you celebrate together with them when they're on the mountain peaks. We often, too often, reduce Christian fellowship to simply these activities, watching a movie, going mini-golf, uh, bowling. And these are things where fellowship can take place, but to reduce fellowship to these kinds of activities is to lose out on the richness of fellowship. So in your community, do you have people participating with you in all of the seasons of life? Do you have people who can come up alongside side of you and trudge with you throughout the cold winter months when the days are long and dark? Do you have people who are walking with you hand in hand in the warm spring seasons when the sun is brightly shining? 
And I, of course, I mean these things outside of your uh, spouse and outside of your direct family. Do you have brothers and sisters in Christ that you are sharing intimately with in true fellowship, a true participation of life? It is so sad, friends, when there comes suffering in your life and of course you have the Lord, and of course you may have your spouse or your family, but outside of that you have no one else in the Christian community who's walking with you. That, that is a great indicator, I think, that you are missing out on an essential component of community in the same way that you receive such great news. Who do you have to share it with? Now, unfortunately, uh, those who are on social media feel like there's the great outlet of, of posting it on, the new, uh, on you know, your news feed and, oh, I get a lot of likes. Well, first of all, those people just clicked it because uh, they scrolled right on through. There's not a true participation in the joys of life. Do you have that in your communities? Because that's what true fellowship is. Here's the third thing. Community involves the breaking of bread and the opening of heart and home. Now, um, I want to kind of bring this out here, uh, so I hope you could track with me, but uh, there's a debate on what the breaking of bread means in Acts 2. Uh, some say that breaking of bread refers to the Lord's Supper um, because it says the breaking of bread, so it's not just a breaking of bread, but like the breaking, the Lord's Supper, and the prayers, and say, oh, it's, it's referring to liturgy in the church, but I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think it's more accurate to refer, uh, to, to understand breaking of bread meaning uh, simply ordinary meals. I think some people have a problem with that. There's a knee-jerk reaction because Oh, it says fellowship, it says prayers. Those are like spiritual things, and, and eating is just, it's just so normal. But no, no, actually, I think uh, you are misunderstanding the importance of eating in the Bible, um, which is why I take the command so seriously. Um, there, are, there are two reasons why, you know. First, eating in the Bible is a serious, spiritual, and special matter. When Jesus broke bread with people in the Bible, it was so much more than simply eating together. Special things happened around the dinner table. When Jesus sat with people and ate with them, there were all these boundaries being crossed. And in a culture where hospitality is so valued, the breaking of bread is an intimate affair. It's a sharing of life together. It's an opening of heart and opening of home. Uh, and, and secondly, actually, if you look right a few verses later in verse 46, Luke writes, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their own homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. So here, uh, clearly, breaking a bread clearly refers, refers just to eating uh, the meals together. Um, so I bring this up because uh, I think it's important for us to understand the significance of, of breaking bread together uh, that the Bible presents, not simply the way that we practice it. So, you know, when we talk about uh, going out to eat and, and breaking bread together, you know, I'm, I think we picture like, you know, 15 of us like invading a new restaurant and really, you know, like asking for 15 seats and just like, what is with these Asians coming and always in such large groups? You know, that's not what breaking bread is. It's not, you know, oh, let's go check out the new ramen place in the city and everyone getting in a car and driving down there. That's not the breaking of bread that we should be envisioning here. The breaking of bread invited uh, wel inviting people and then welcoming them into your home. But when you did that, it was inviting and welcoming them more than just a home, into your heart, into somebody's life, into an intimate space. You know, breaking bread meant more than just eating together. It meant, it meant preparing. It meant cooking. It meant serving. It meant conversation, meant life on life. You know, the power of breaking bread happens when through the meal you break into each other's lives. And this is why hospitality involves home and heart. So here's my question. Are you making space in your life? Are you making space in your schedule? Are you making space, even in your budget, to share meals with people? 
Now, I'm not just referring to inviting people over to your home, um, but I am asking that if these moments, that, that, that in your moments, outside of just eating with your family or just eating with you know, the people you're normally comfortable with, that are you making space in your life, schedule, and your budget for these opportunities to happen? Because you know, I, I've seen uh, people attend church for years and you know they know some people in the church, but they're pretty relatively unknown. But once they have one meal with another person, they are better known through that one meal than through their years of attendance. And their experience of that community exponentially grows. And so I just exhort you, consider either consider inviting someone over for a meal or out to a meal, and consider accepting somebody else's invitation to go eat with them. Consider the power of breaking bread together for your soul's sake, not just your stomachs. Here's the fourth, and I'll wrap with this. Community is marked by prayers for and prayers by others. Prayers for and prayers by others. When you pray for and are prayed for by others, do you know what's happening? Uh, you're not just thinking of them. You're not just thinking positive thoughts and positive vibes their way. When you pray for somebody, you are wearing that person on your heart as you bring them before the Father. You are bringing them and their needs into that secret place with God. And in that most intimate moment you are sharing between you and the Father, you are bringing somebody else into that conversation. And that is a powerful, powerful thing. You know, if somebody shares good news with you or bad news with you and you receive it, oh, that's great, and you walk away from that conversation, then, you know, those things are in your head. You remember these good things, these bad things that happen, but they won't have sunk into your heart. But when you pray for somebody, when you hear good news and you hear bad news and then you walk away and you pray for them, either a prayer of thanksgiving or uh, a prayer of intercession on their behalf, when you actually bear somebody's blessings and you also bear their burdens, then it has a way of moving what they've just said from your head into your heart because you know as you hear something from somebody you can be happy for them but it's only when you pray for somebody that you will truly celebrate with them when you hear something bad you know you can hear something awful and feel sad for somebody but when you pray with them is when you truly cry with them and you move from mere observation to participation when you pray for a person. The question I have is this, do you have a community of believers who you know are absolutely committed to praying for you? Don't escape this question. Is there somebody in your life, outside of your family, that you know at a drop of a hat, that if you ask them for prayer, they will fall to their knees and they will wear you on their hearts before the Father? Do you have anybody outside of your family who's willing to do that? But not only that, let me ask you this question. At this very moment, do you know another person's prayer request? Christian, listen. Do you know another Christian's prayer request? Do you have right now in your heart and in your mind a specific thing that you can pray for regarding another person because one, they've shared it with you, and two, you've asked? Because if you don't, you really have to think about why and what that says about your faith. What does that say about you? What does that say about your faith? What does that say about your community? If you know, if you have no idea what to pray for anybody else about, that is a big, big problem. You know, if you belong to a community, you'll not only have people praying for you, but you'll have people to pray for. 
question is, are you experiencing these realities in your life? Are these evidenced in your life? Is there a community that's exhorting you in God's word and you can exhort others and encourage others through God's word? Is there a community that you are really sharing life with, intimately participating in, feeling together the joys and the lows? Are there people that you are breaking bread with, inviting into home and heart? Are there people that you are praying for and people you are being prayed for by? Community doesn't just happen. It requires intentional fostering. It involves in commitment to be there for one another. But let's face the facts. Because the reasons I withdraw from community, maybe some of the reasons you do, are these simple things. You know, like, is community messy? Most definitely. And can community be hard? Without a question, is community inconvenient? Amen. <laughs> but is community worth it? Absolutely. But what makes it worth committing to such an imperfect community made up of imperfect people? And it's only when you realize that you're part of that imperfect people that you don't want to get involved with. You don't stand apart from the imperfection. You contribute to it. And yet even us, when we were broken and sinful and imperfect in so many ways, Jesus Christ committed himself in his life and in his death to save you. You know, Jesus Christ took the most unlovable collection of sinners, and through his love and sacrifice, he transformed us into his beloved community of saints. And so your attitude for committing to an imperfect community will only change when you realize that you are one of those imperfect people that Jesus committed himself to die for. You don't stand outside of that. You stand included in that. But Jesus did more than that. Through his death, Jesus not only forgave you of your sins, but he brought sinners together. He, he forged a new community by his blood. And through his death, he secured your membership to his church, and he secured your fellowship among his saints, and he secured your kinship into his family. And when you see Christ's commitment on the cross for you, it strengthens your commitment, not only back to him, but to one another. Because the gospel says that Christ died for your imperfections, and now he covers you with his perfection. And if that's true for you, that's true for every other believer that is united to him. Because when I look at other people and the reason I want to stay distant from them and not get too involved for all the inconvenience and the messiness and the burdens of their lives, they are imperfect. Why would I want to latch myself onto that? But when you understand that you are imperfect and yet Christ gave you his perfection, covered you with it, then that means that's true of that believer as well, friends. And so if God looks at you and he doesn't count your imperfections against you, but he chooses to see you through the perfection of his son covering you, then how then can you look at another person and count their imperfections against them? How can you hold that as a reason and excuse to keep your distance? Because if God didn't let your messiness keep you at an arm's length, but he drew near to you, how can you let another person's mess be the same excuse for why you want to keep them at an arm's distance. If God is committed to draw near to you despite the hurt and the pain that you would cost him, then how can you not be willing to endure any bit of pain or hurt and inconvenience and discomfort to draw near to another person? The grace he has shown us transforms us into grace shown to others. The patience he had with us leads us to express patience with others. The commitment he has made to you strengthens your commitment made to others. 
This is how the gospel empowers us to form true community. You must let the gospel change you before you demand that the gospel changes others. And this is why, friends, community is committed unity. It's grounded in Christ's commitment to you, and it's sustained by your commitment to one another. If we want to be a church, and it's my dream that Cornerstone becomes a church where community is fostered, and it is cultivated and curated, and it grows. If, if we want to be uh, a place where people come and experience an Acts 2 kind of community, we don't focus on the community itself. We focus on Christ. And in his commitment to us, we then now are transformed and empowered to be committed to one another. You focus on Christ, and the community follows. If you focus on community, and it will begin to break down. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for um, the group of believers here who, who come um, to hear your word, and um, I pray, Lord, are and were encouraged by uh, today's word. It, it comes as a challenge, uh, especially uh, when we hear a message like this and we know we're not living our lives uh, according to this way. Uh, it makes us feel uncomfortable. It makes us feel guilty. Uh, but Lord, I pray that more than, more than guilt and, and more than um, just simple feelings of insufficiency, uh, Lord, that we would remember uh, first and foremost um, Father, that we're not saved according to, to how much we do, um, and we're not disqualified, uh, Lord, from your grace when uh, we fail to live in certain ways. Uh, but I pray, God, that as we're strengthened again in uh, understanding how much you love us and the commitment of your Son shown to us, uh, that that would empower us then, Lord, to want to and be placed in a, in, in, with a heart of desire uh, to commit to others around us. I pray, God, that Cornerstone could be a place where community is fostered and deep relationships are formed and your word is uh, shared and the fellowship is experienced and bread is broken together and prayers prayed for, Lord. Um, and I pray, God, that uh, as you conform us into the image of Jesus more and more, as we set our eyes on him, that you would bring that about unto your glory, Lord, and unto the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of the Spirit who unites us together in Christ, may the blessing of the triune God be with you both now and forevermore. Amen. Hear now the words of dismissal, friends. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Go in peace.